Welcome to another episode of the Beyond Barriers podcast with your hosts, myself, Acacia Dietz, and Jeff Scoop. Today, we have a very special guest with us, a writer and a speaker on faith, identity, and belonging, Ms. Shireen Kudosi. In 2021, Shireen created the Foundation for Human Belonging, a 501c3 that looks at the arc of human belonging to build alternative frameworks challenging radicalization, polarity, and extremism. Welcome, Shireen. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the Human Belonging Foundation. Like I've seen your posts on Twitter and I've seen them on Instagram and I can say with certainty, like I absolutely love the idea of it. And I'm very excited to hear a little bit more. I know Jeff has several other questions for you too, but I figured I'd just shoot mine out there first. Sure. So this comes in the Foundation for Human Belonging is a culmination of 20 years of experience what started off as really dealing with Islamist extremism and understanding the, the distorted theology that was radicalizing Muslims to looking at the broad spectrum of all ideologies that are that are extreme in nature. And then even how that's changed over 2020 with the mass surveillance, with indoctrination to different ideologies. I mean, it's just, we're becoming so tribal that I wanted to take my, my two decades of experience look at what was being done right, what could be done better, and then really humanize that into a new framework. And that framework to be more inclusive of, of really the core of feminine leadership, which is softer messaging, softer, you know, softer rhetoric, um, still punchy, still very, very strong and assertive, but not everything needs to be a hammer kind of approach. And so really looking at like, when can we discuss things in a certain framework that that really is, is more, um, uh, consumable by a wider audience versus one does have to be more laser targeted to a specific like ideology on a more policy level so that we're educating the widest possible people and informing them on what does radicalization look like like what's the blueprint so that it's not this weird confusing like like amorphous thing that's out there that people can't really incorporate an understanding of in their own lives but to really sort of look like oh like this is what it looks like and I'll give you a really quick right. example is after the collective sort of health crisis that we have in 2020, you would think that, you know, we're not just looking at what radicalization looks like on the level of extremist ideologies, but how is that sort of dripping down into the everyday framework of our everyday lives and to really sort of educate on that as much as anything else. Because I don't think this, this radicalization thing is just pinholed, like the way that we demonize groups of people, oh, you're neo-Nazi or you're Muslim or you're this or that, but really like it's such a sinister thing and it's such a significant distortion into, into our right to live as, as human beings on this planet that we have to look at like every crack that it's going into. And do, do, to do that without scaring people or um, accusing people and to really kind of make it simple for people to understand. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's it's uh it's an outlook that I think more people need to have in this society and and look at things in a different light and and uh, you're definitely uh, on the front lines of that and and that's that's why we're so happy to have you on the program. If you could, um, I know you're a little bit about your history, but I think um, our listeners would really like to hear right now in in society. One of the things that's going on is is um, with the trouble in Afghanistan and the, the switch to the Taliban there now and, and everything that's going on. And I know you've been, you've been working on that and your background coming from Afghanistan, if you wouldn't mind, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my dad was an Afghan refugee um, and mom's Pakistani, but they both escaped from Afghanistan when the coup happened in the 1970s. 
and they had to get smuggled out. So it was it was a very similar experience in a lot of ways to what's going on now. So it was it was really um, coming full circle for me. And it was a lot of trauma for a lot of first and second generation Afghans reliving what has been lived through in the last century. So I grew up with those stories. I mean, my entire life was impacted by the fact that we had to leave essentially like our homeland. And so seeing how the, the migration journey that I had and that my parents had, which was very different. I was a kid, they were adults. And so we had two very, very different experiences and seeing what that was like growing up with that, hearing the stories and then coming here, it was, it was really surreal to kind of see the fall of Afghanistan again, and to see it not just from the perspective of these are the stories that my parents have lived, but also that this is the failure of 20 years of, of not understanding what is essentially at the heart of it, very much a theological problem. And we saw that with the way the Taliban was being interviewed, so to speak. I can't say that they were really being interviewed. They were just being questioned, giving softball questions and softball answers. And to see that you know, here we are again, 20 years later, completely failing, wasting millions of dollars, because at the heart of it, we couldn't understand that A, it's a theological problem, the Taliban, at least the ideology is theological. Secondly, you're looking at a culture that is extremely tribal, like Afghans are not religious people, they're tribal, they have a sort of tribal identity, but they're not religious. This entire Taliban, like, militant theology is very alien for the people. And then just also seeing the geopolitics, because what we're looking at geopolitically is very, very different cocktail from any other you know, time period in recent memory where the US or, the, or Russia uh, took an intervening hand in the region. You've got China coming in with, with an open door invitation. There is no combative strategy there. It's a very diplomatic um, executive business strategy that they have with the Taliban to give them legitimacy and to also sort of you know, have some sort of back and forth with them. And that is and that is really scary. So when we're looking at the fall of the Taliban, I don't know if this answers your question, but feel free to interrupt me. When we're looking at the fall of, the, the fall of Afghanistan, we're not just looking at the rise of Taliban. We're looking at the Al-Qaeda aspects that are still there. We're looking at the Haqqani network. We're looking at um, uh, ISIS-K now. And ISIS-K and Haqqani network are really attract a lot of the rejects in the Taliban and what makes you a Taliban reject is because you thought the Taliban wasn't extreme enough. What makes them not extreme enough? Well, they went to the negotiation tables with the US. And so a real, like quote unquote, real militant, hardcore um, guerrilla fighter in Islamist ideology is not going to negotiate with, with the empire essentially. Two is they weren't violent enough. So when you see the bombings of, you know, the attacks on school children, schools, pregnant women, mosques, that's, that's the more extreme factions. So the future of Afghanistan is not just the Taliban's in power, that you've got these other aspects of, of extreme ideologies. And then you've also got China, which has its own problems with, uh, with how it deals its, with its Muslim population, how it surveils its own communities, its, its own extremist state, essentially, and its influence in the region. Plus China's proxy allies are, who are they? North Korea, Russia, and then through, yeah. through default, I would say Iran and Turkey as well. So you've got a really scary cocktail. And I think that is the most um, daunting thing about what's going on. You know, you've got the refugee crisis, of course, but the withdrawal is over. America's attention is going to go elsewhere as it, as it always does, which is normal. It's human behavior. But the future of Afghanistan is, I think we're seeing a really scary picture just starting to be painted. So how does that um, figure in? Like, I know about the, the Pashtun people and a lot of the Taliban are, are Pashtun and, and with like your Pashtun Wali uh, um, customs, 
Is that something that is this something that the Taliban is, is going to be fighting these more extreme groups or um, as far as the, the Pashtun uh, Pashtun Wali uh, aspect um, is when I when I look back at what happened there, you know, 20 years ago, I, I said these are people that can't be defeated. And I, I felt that it was because, well, historically, they, they haven't been. And because of those tribal aspects and because of those customs, they they have this, um, well, you, I'm sure you could explain it a lot better, but this honor bound, like if the U.S. or, or the Russians or whoever is drone bombing them and an uncle passes away, isn't the rest of the family, uh, according to the customs, uh, honor bound to avenge that? It's a very complicated question, and and I don't think I could speak fully to the Pashtun aspect other than, like I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on that aspect of it, other than what I do know growing up and being around is that it is, there is an intense honor sort of aspect to their to their society. And that can go either way. I mean, that's obviously, you know, how are those honor ties going to be tapped into? But also I think the other interesting aspect of it is, are the Taliban going to be seen as Afghans? And I say that because if they're not, then then those then those tribal affiliations, those honor affiliations, get amplified in a way that's to the advantage of people like you and I who are more who are more free-minded. Um, if the Taliban is not seen as authentically Afghan, and we've seen that in the last 20 years, for example, if you were an Afghan citizen who grew up in Afghanistan, born in Afghanistan, but you went away to another country, even temporarily, and then came back, the civilian service force, typically the reports I got was that you weren't seen as a real Afghan. So it's, it's a really big question as to, okay, well, are the Taliban who, who at this point, you know, where are they from? Are they, have they been living out in the West? Have they been, are they from other factions, other groups? Are they going to be seen as authentically, as authentically Afghan? And secondly, like, can they run that country first and foremost? Then they have the other tribal factors, right? So you've, you've seen in the media, you've seen Kabul as sort of the center force for defining what Afghanistan is. Kabul, from what I've, what I've heard from veterans, is an anomaly. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure and investment in Kabul, but the, the other regions outside of Kabul, very much like the Pashtuns, these are very, very tribal communities. And what I've heard thus far from folks is that the Taliban is just going through annihilating those villages. Just There's just no, there's no media attention to that. And what, what sort of recourse do those people even have at this point? Like there is no recourse. There's there's nothing for them to kind of fall back on. So I think it's a really big question. And I don't I don't have an I don't think anyone could have an answer for that right now. I think there's a lot that remains to be seen depending on, you know, what other factors come into play. And as far as the interpreters and things, uh, things go for that, all these different interpreters and people that work with the West, um, what are your, what are your feelings on that? I, I personally believe that anybody that had worked with the West need to be gotten out of there because history has proven that, that uh, those people have, in the past have been hunted down and, and uh, not treated, uh, well, been put to an end in a lot of cases. So um, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that as well. I mean, I'm, I'm with everyone who at large, I haven't heard a single person say that we shouldn't leave, that we should leave our interpreters behind. Everyone collectively, <clears throat> excuse me, agrees that we should get them out. But the fact is we haven't. There's a lot of people that got left behind. And, you know, I still get emails from, um, you know, it's fascinating because it's not just the government doing this job, it's veterans, it's uh, think tank personalities, influencers, it's everyday people, like I've gotten emails from people who were contracted as uh, 
civilian as part of the civilian sector in Afghanistan, and they had civilian Afghan uh, colleagues, and they're trying to get them out. And they worked with really, really big infrastructure contractors. And so it's everyone just trying to do their part to get these people out. But the fact is, the withdrawal date is over with. These people did get left behind. So many people got left behind. And I think it speaks to the picture of, you know, where do we stand as a, as a global community, as, as part of the global community? And, <clears throat> pardon me, the, the sentiment that I grew up with in that part of the world is that Americans can't be trusted, that Americans don't have honor, loyalty, they don't have integrity. And I think even prior to Afghanistan, we've seen that with the sort of internal strife that we have in our, in our, in our nation, in that we can't even agree on basic things like gender. We can't agree on basic things like abortion rights. We, can't, we just can't agree on basic stuff. And that underscores the idea that the secular world does not have stability. And that really plays into this extremist idea across the board, not just militant Muslim extremists, but across the board that these older institutions, these older ideas, these older theologies, have more lasting power and all they have to do, like that phrase goes, America has the clock, the Taliban has the time where these different ideologies have the time. All they have to do is kind of just wait for us to like dissolve ourselves. And so the idea that we just left all these people behind who were allies and even just like, I have family that that's still stuck there. Like they couldn't get out. We tried everything and we still are, but at this point, like what are we supposed to do? The idea is that it really reinforces that, that notion that Americans don't have loyalty, they don't have integrity, you can't trust them. And I think moving forward, it's just not gonna help us. It's not gonna help us in the global stage. Um, even if there is no other war, let's just say wars ended tomorrow and that's it. There are still problems, civic problems that need to be dealt with. And what is our participating power if we just don't stand by our word? And I think that's really the concern there is um, it makes us more vulnerable at the end of the day. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, and as far as like your work with human belonging, how, how would you suggest the United States does better? And I, this is a loaded question, but it's, it's, it's what can we do as a society, as a civil society to do better? And not just with the Afghanistan situation, but in human, human understanding and, and relationships in general. I would say three things. First and foremost, we really have to have an immersive experience. Like we talk about so many issues, but we talk about them at the superficial level. Unless someone experiences, and Jeff, you know this sitting across from Dia Khan, until you had that experience of talking to her face to face and what that what feelings that surfaced in you, like until you have an immersive experience, you nothing will change. People will not change, but they can change if they have an immersive experience. So what does that look like? I mean, there's so many great programs out there that are willing to offer that. It's a question of are they going to get funded? Are they going to get visibility? The, the second thing is that it's just, you know, it's it's really about local solutions, bringing local solutions into power. And we've seen that in Afghanistan, for example, so many people are wondering, what can I do? And as much as I and someone else try to get people out, end of the day, we were at the mercy of, you know, whether the flight can take off. But there are refugees coming to town and there are local problems even beyond the refugee crisis. There's so many local issues where if we enact our ability as local change agents, we can actually make a difference. So what does that look like in the case of Afghanistan? It's well, okay, there's refugees coming, what can we do to help them? Sure, they need X, Y, and Z materialistic goods to, to start their life over, but they also need to integrate into what it means to be American. Like they're bringing their culture, their trauma, their tragedy, you know, their, their perceptions of what is normal 
in with them across the threshold. It's not just their baggage. It's, it's, it's everything. It's their entire history. And so how can we integrate them through programs or in through participation that really helps them acclimate to a new lifestyle here? The third thing is the power of language. Okay, so how are we talking about these issues? Um, you know, and, and it goes back to the idea that we cannot win the kinetic war, the war that goes tick, tick, boom, until we can win the ideological war. We can't win the ideological war unless we know what kind of ideology we're dealing, it, dealing with until we know, like, what does it actually mean to be a part of this identity and to part, be a part of this group? Like, what are the drivers? And until we can understand that we can't win the war on, on any front. And a lot of that has to do, you know, it comes back to language. Like, what is, how are we talking about these things? How are we... Um, orienting our understanding. And, and a really quick example I'll give you is how these two things tie in together, language and then also orientation in, in terms of the ideological war, is what you saw with the same day that Afghanistan withdrawal deadline hit, we had this issue in Texas with the Texas abortion law, right? And so I'm not talking about abortion itself, like that's up to every individual's however they want to talk about it, but I'm talking about the language around how we talk about this problem. And what you saw was people referring to it as uh, American Taliban, Texas Sharia. And, and it's such a misnomer because first and foremost, there is a world of difference between the Taliban and the lawmakers in the US. There is a world of difference between uh, Sharia law and this specific abortion. And, and the fact is that not only did we monumentally balls up this withdrawal and this, and this fight essentially uh, for 20 years, but now we can't even get the terminology right about this problem here. Like we can't even understand that there's a difference between this and this. And if we can't understand that, if we're going to be lazy and, and just dive into the, the cliche rhetoric that, that makes us feel like, you know, oh, we got one on somebody else, then we're never ever going to be able to solve the problem as a human species. Like that is so integral to everything is A, the language, and then B, like really understanding like what is this ideology and what, what drives it? Well, like uh, a good Absolutely. example, I think too, is, is how they label, and I shouldn't, they, I'm, I'm being broad brush here, but a lot of people in society, like throwing around the label extremist, Yep. That, that can apply to, depending on who you ask, it could uh, you vote Republican or you vote Democrat, you're, you're an extremist now. I mean, that's how crazy it's gotten. So I agree with you 100%. The language is important and, and labeling people and just uh, throwing it all into this box. I mean, that's where, that's where extremists are made. And, and I speak from experience on that one, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it's, it's when you start doing that labeling. So I, I agree with you. Labeling is so important and, and, and the education and understanding um, one another. And I think we need to really work on that as a society, uh, internet globally, a global mm -hmm. society that we need yeah. to understand one another and have this dialogue, have this, have conversations and, and humanize the person across from us and instead of labeling them and, and uh so i'm really glad that uh um that you see that and and uh and uh, pointed that out because it's really important i just real quick wanted to say something too like you mentioned the power of language and i i see this in your posts a lot too which i am a lover of quotes and just of everything language i guess not everything you know i i can do without the english classes but other than that i because it is very, very powerful. And I know as a society, a lot of times I've seen it over the years of 
you hit the nail on the head. It's just a matter of being lazy. Oh, well, it kind of, you know, this is a strong word and something that we don't like. So we're going to attach it to this, even though the actual meaning of it has nothing to do with it. I mean, it's like labeling all conservative Nazis and all Democrats communists and all, you know. So I definitely agree with you. Like the power of language is it's very powerful and many times we want to paint everything with a broad brush and you can't there are several nuances but i know you know back when 9 11 happened i was in high school and it was i think it was a big thing for america because we thought we could we were untouchable and it proved to us that we were not untouchable but i also know that before that things with wars, unless you were a part of the military or had family such as yourself over in the other parts of the world, you, at least me growing up, had this idea that, well, this happens there. So what concern is it of ours? And even now I'm realizing that, you know, people are talking, it, it hits a little bit closer to home since I work in the realm of extremism now. Um, but seeing all of this happen over there and realizing and people are true to say it too that why should we care what happens over there first and foremost these are human beings these are lives these are people these aren't just some catastrophic event happening across the world and secondly it does matter what happens over there because if we allow extremist ideology to take hold somewhere, it's only a matter of time before it's going to reach back across the world again. And so it does affect everybody. Um, so I, for one, want to commend you for being willing to step out of the norm and go against the quote unquote norm to try and help reveal a lot of these truths because it takes a very strong person to do that. And I'm sure, you know, you probably get a lot of backlash for being as open and honest as you are. Um, do I, I guess I should say, I'm, I'm assuming that you do because you don't, you're not only vocal on this front, but on everything having to do with humanity and showing the humanity of that other and trying to curve that. Um, especially with this everything going on in Afghanistan, have you received a lot of backlash for your support of trying to get people out of there? Not not in Afghanistan, but you bring up a really good a really good point. What that backlash looks like changes depending on the season of your life. So when I first started out, that backlash was from my family. And it was, I mean, I got called the devil by my mom. I got kicked out of the house. Like I was homeless for a good half a year. I mean, it was it was pretty bad. It economically just devastated me, right? So that's what the backlash looked like the early years, like 15 years ago. That's what that's where it was at. Over time, that changes um, as as the world events become really really unavoidable. People, at least in my family, they've started noticing like, okay, this is why she speaks on this because it came from you know it came from what was it where we were barely talking about these issues to now after after January 6th, uh, 2001, uh, 21, you can't ignore that this is everywhere. This is so pervasive. So there's more 
normalization of what you're talking about. The what the backlash looks like as you get older and more seasoned is um, a lack of resources and a platform. So, and this is where the polarization comes in. And I think you guys and a lot of your listeners will probably understand this, where unless you kind of drink the Kool-Aid and say what needs to be said, the way it needs to be said, and unless you're really like, you know, catty on Twitter and have a certain kind of persona, you just will not make it at this point. Like I, my platform has been devastated um, because ever since I left officially the conservative sort of circle and, and the talking points, I still agree with a lot of the, the, the direction that they're going in in terms of how they want to talk about stuff or what their views are, but I think how they go about it is just completely wrong. I think it just uh, demonizes and alienates people. But because I don't talk about these things with, with cruelty, you, you know, my language has really changed. And there's people who've noticed that. There's a lot of folks who really noticed that. It's opened up a new sort of audience, but in terms of like, am I gonna get that radio show? Am I gonna get, you know, am I gonna get speaker gigs? No, because unless you're speaking in the language that people are familiar with, which is cruelty, it can be extremely alienating, which makes your work and my work that much tougher, but that much also more important right now. Absolutely. I would definitely agree with you. And you're right, I mean, here at Beyond Barriers, like we're learning that whole, you know, the government sets out such and such amount for funding, but a lot of times, unless you drink the Kool-Aid and you talk the good talk and are willing to compromise on values that probably should not be, then a lot of times you're kind of left in the dust to do it all on your own. and. I don't know about you and and I know about Jeff, but I'll tell you what, I, I think they have another thing coming if they realize that all of us that actually do believe in this, that it's going to stop us. Because if anything, I think just from seeing all the things that you're doing, it's made your uh, resolve that much stronger because you know it's that much needed. Yeah. I mean, there is no funding right now. Like nope. everything I'm doing is out of pocket, out of my time your dime, there is just nothing. And part of, you know, and part of the reason people are like, why don't you just go gung-ho for, why don't you just do the women's thing? Because that's soft, everyone likes them. Like, that's great, I can tap into that when I need to. But that's not the core message here. The core message here is, is how is distortion wrecking, a wrecking ball into our lives? And, and what does that distortion's mask look like depending on the scene that we're in? And that's the most important conversation in human civilization, like we are at the pinnacle of what human civilization is, it can either go up or it can completely crash. And we're at sort of like that point where it's, you know, it's rubber meets the road, like, what are we going to do? And I think at this point, if the government thinks that the the roadmap that they're on is sustainable, they have, I think, I, I think no one is under any illusions that the system's not working. Um, I, was, I was telling folks that after Afghanistan, it's, it's, it's been really eye-opening because, yeah, it is an over-there country. Typically, 20 years passed by. No one really paid attention to it. Now, because, again, it's been it's been something that we've lost at so visibly, people are realizing, okay, this didn't work, and it's been going on for 20 years. Like, what else is not working? It's really, really made a lot of people more vocal. So I think we're going to start seeing a change. Um, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I think it's going to happen within the next two or three years. But the, the way things are going is just at this point not sustainable. And the work that you and I are doing, our communities are doing, are, are essentially the future. 
I, I think it was really interesting how you mentioned how it's cruelty. I've never, I've never heard of it. I've, I've never thought of it that way even, but you're, you're right on. And, and that's why, you know, we think your work is so inspiring and what you're doing is so inspiring um, because these things need to be said. And that's exactly what it is. It's, there's so much cruelty in society, um, even just between, you know, the political parties. It's so it's hateful. Like it is, it is literally coming from an extremist background. It's like the stuff that we used to spew in those days. That you know, being on an extremist organization. That's what we're hearing, and we're hearing it out of mainstream politicians, out of government officials, like people that should not, they should know better, that should not be saying these kind of things. So I agree with you. I mean, right now it is very difficult we're doing as you know we're doing everything out of pocket as well um and it's it's hard it's hard to sustain it's hard to keep going um but we do it because we believe in it and i know that's that's the same that's the same thing that pushes you on as well and it's noble and it's honorable and it's and it's uh, inspiring but uh the cruelty you're right and th and that's what we need to we need to break through that and be able to have these conversations have this dialogue have some empathy Passion. I don't think people understand that. I don't think they see it. And I'll give you an example, right? Like you've got the, the squad in Congress. Uh, uh, what's her name? AOC, Ilan Omar Rashida, and then uh, Ayanna Presley. And you've got the squad. And that, and, I, and once you start training in what extremism looks like, and you've literally lived this, once you start training in what extremism looks like, you cannot unsee it in every other aspect of life. And so when I see the squad and I'm thinking, that's a gang. They just they just made a gang at a Congress. And so now you're going to go and tell little kids don't join gangs. But that's that's like a higher upper office elected gang at this point. That's how they branded themselves. Not an alliance, not a cooperation, not a council, not a fellowship, but a squad, which by default means you're excluding other people. And there's there's examples of that on the other side. You know, you've got Ted Cruz, um, you know, leaving Texas to go on holiday while the rest of the country freezes or the rest of the state freezes. But the next second he's, he's tapping on the rhetoric of blue collar steel workers to talk about American jobs. These people don't care about steel workers and, and blue collar people, but it's rhetoric that gets tapped into to polarize and demonize like, oh, I'm gonna support this blue collar state here. But by doing that, and I forgot exactly the, the language he used, but by doing that, he pivoted against something else. So it wasn't something that any of them do intentionally. I think most of them are not intentionally aware of how they're polarizing their, their societies, but it's when you are stepping into language that is, that is by default really, really combative and alienating to another group of people, like that is, the, that is the cause and effect that happens there. And I think that's where our work really comes in is it's, it's, such, an, it's such an important work because you've got really smart, bright people. Like I'm not saying none of these people are, they're all exceptionally bright, talented, gifted people. They just don't have the component of awareness here because their life path, their experiences didn't give them that. So we're here to give people that like, hey, this, this is what you're doing. This is how you're just causing, you know, a bigger problem down the road. Like it's, and, and so that's the tough part to have because people don't want to be told they're wrong. People don't want to be told that there's a better way to do this and everything the minute you make a suggestion it becomes very very combative and that's where the foundation for human belonging comes in and that's what i love about beyond barriers because 
you're literally looking to see, okay, let's get rid of the divisive language. Let's get rid of the walls between us and the other person. And let's really sort of look at a common playing field here. Um, and, and, and again, I think it's a matter of time where, where the impact that we have is going to start being seen. I, I think it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow, but that's the long haul game. And you hit the nail on the head with that one. You know, it, it's, it's the long haul. It's the big picture. Like if we were just worried about the little picture, we'd be doing what everybody else does and spout the rhetoric. And, but that's, it's, it's not about that. It's about the people. And, um, it, it's, it's interesting that you pointed on the fact of like, we're talking about language and the importance of language. And I've noticed it even within myself that until, until I started working with beyond barriers and started doing a lot of introspection and everything. I even did not realize the magnitude that language has and the reach that it has and the way that it shapes um, how we view things. Um, we talk a lot about dialogue and about humanizing the other. And until, you know, I was involved in extremism and until I started doing, you know, working in, you know, counter extremism or preventing extremism and trying to educate people on the realities of it, not just that it's this big boogeyman, but like you said earlier, you know, educating them on the proper way to deal with it, educating them on the actual ideology and instead of just looking at it like it's the boogeyman and we just need to ignore it or extinguish it like you know these are really people that if given the proper tools do have the chance to step away from it so i think that's really interesting even that you know with our politicians you're mentioning how it's not always that they're necessarily doing it on purpose sometimes it's more not realizing the effect of the language used and what that effect and that outcome will actually be. Um, so I think you're right. We definitely need a lot more education on the use of our words and what we use to communicate because it makes a really big difference. Um, and then also I had a quick question also, like how did you, and I don't know if I've ever asked you this before in person or not, but how did you get involved with wanting to work in the realm of extremism and radicalization and polarity? 9-11. I mean, 9-11 happened. I was on track to go to law school. And, you know, you do all the things you got to do to get to law school. And it's not fun and it's not cheap, but you do it. And the 9-11 happened and you're like, wait, what? What just, what? And you start asking questions about your religion that you've been branded with from birth. And you realize you don't really know. Like, I, it was just one definitive conversation that I have that I had with a really trusted sacred friendship and he asked a question about um, Muhammad and I couldn't answer it and I wasn't comfortable with the fact that I couldn't answer it so I started asking other people that are Muslim and they couldn't answer it either and I'm like huh okay so why can't we answer it and then I started asking more questions and we couldn't answer basic questions and we didn't have the knowledge for for that conversation and so I started just studying it I quit school a year later and I just started studying it on my own. I mean, it was early 2000s. We didn't have social media and communities and all the data that we have, like Twitter wasn't really a thing. And so you're just kind of figuring it out. And so I, I mean, I traveled to Japan. I studied with Muslim communities in Japan. 
I studied with a critical loyalty and this fantastic sheikh uh, just in the history of Islam and Islamic theology, asked just so many questions, volunteered with the local Shura Council and the Islamic Institute locally here to see like, what are the different paradigms that we're, that we're dealing with and just read the Quran, just, I mean, and I can't say it's just one timeline. I would say that my entire life, like even up until like last night, and there's always something happening in it that's refining my understanding of this problem and constantly shaping it. And then in um, 2000, what was it, 2018, 2019, when I looked at the broader spectrum of extremism across the board through Clarion Project, that was my role with the Preventing Non-Extremism Training Program. And I realized that, oh gosh, this is not, this is a very, very, this is like a blueprint for human behavior, essentially. Like why do certain people go down this route? And I saw that there's really, there's a very sort of consistent pattern for what radicalized people, you know, just a couple of things I learned was, you know, just um, like, what are the seven or eight characteristics of an extremist? And you realize they're not, it's not like you have to go, okay, attends weekly dungeon meetings, you know, like covets, like, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, these are very simple things like frustration, um, alienation, um, feeling of, importance you know feeling that you're here i'm like oh i check off seven of these you know seven out of 11 or whatever it was mm -hmm. why didn't i become an extremist and the reason being is that you know there's just there's certain factors that have to happen in your life at the right time mixed with who you are at that point in time that pushes you down that little rabbit hole of extremism and if any of those things had happened to me when i was 20 21 yeah i would have been an extremist so there's not that much of a difference between us and anybody else. And it's a very, very real thing. And then I, one of the workshops we're working on for the Foundation for Human Belonging is the immersive experience of what is the culture of extremists, right? <clears throat> An example of that would be, what is the music? What is the poetry? What is the art? So that as much as possible without going into that dungeon meeting in the back room, like you are really going into the world of what it feels like. And a lot of the times when you, hear the music or you hear the poetry, you feel an emotion and it's a human emotion, like it's normal human emotion. And you can resonate with that other person who feels the same way. But the minute I tell you, oh, but this was Hitler's favorite song. You're like, oh, what? I don't like that song. But it's like, yeah, wait, yeah. let's get rid of the labels. Let's look at like, what was it that you identified with in this song? Because if you identified with it, you now understand the 10 million people who identified with it as well, enough to go and to go and do something. And that's not to justify what they did, but that's to understand the thought process that led them there because we're nowhere near at the, at the sort of apex of what it means to be a human being. Like we're still struggling with our own, with our own vulnerabilities. And so if we can understand that vulnerability, not only are we understanding that problem so that we're de-escalating the problem, we're also understanding ourselves. Like what is it about me that found something attractive? What is it about me that liked this thing or had this feeling? And so that you can really constantly, you know, keep knocking down those barriers within and without. Absolutely. Well stated, really well stated, because that, that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Um, I, I couldn't say it any better. I, can't, I don't even have anything to add to that, Shireen. That, that was just good. That was really good. Yeah. Is there it's anything else that you're that you're currently working on that you want to uh, speak about? Yeah, so I'm giving a talk on the 20th anniversary of uh, you know the war on terror and going into Afghanistan and 9/11, essentially. So there is a talk on that coming up. The Zoom link is in my bio across Instagram and I think across Twitter as well. 
And so I'm working on the foundation, I'm working on giving more trainings as well. And, and really, as well as my book, um, that's been 20 years in the making. So the book started off as really being about understanding what this problem is with Islam and then realizing, oh, the problem is not Islam, the problem is our human understanding of Islam. And then looking at, looking at Islam as essentially uh, an organic consciousness. So something that's constantly shifting and changing, not something that was fixed in the timeline and that's it. And I think that's very, very symbolic for every ideology, like every sort of identity that we sort of wrap ourselves around. It's not fixed. I mean, the idea of America is another great example. You know, we say, oh, America is this or America. The idea of America is still evolving. As you can tell, you know, we're still fighting about what does it mean to be American at this point, more so I think and then, than at any other point in my living memory. So all of these ideas are still transformative. They're still mutating. And I think we still have a uh, a role to play in writing the next chapter of what it means. And so the book is really about the foundation of human belonging and the song of the human heart. And it's very, very personal. I didn't want it to be another history lesson or talking down to people. I wanted it just to be a conversation like, like this. And so that's finally come together. Um, looking forward to finding a publisher for it and moving forward. And, and I think those two things, plus uh, the, the fallout from 2020 and homeschool, that keeps me busy. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, speaking of 2020 and homeschooling and or just schooling in general for everybody has been crazy. Um, now, I know that you have a son with uh, special needs who is autistic, who you've mentioned on uh, Twitter before and whatnot. Um, how is it trying to run a 501c3, write a book and not only have children, but having to you know, help care for a child with special needs that needs way more than your average child. How, how has that been? How is that? Like, it is the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Like, I mean, every day I think like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up, you know, for, for taking on one of the biggest problems in the world right now. I didn't sign up for, you know, having to navigate the the maze and the labyrinth that is essentially special needs i didn't sign up for becoming a homeschool parent like i didn't sign up for any of this but here we are and i think i think it's just sort of where we are as as people essentially because we're mm -hmm. all dealing with something that we didn't sign up for but here we are and i think it's just um you know a testament to the resiliency that we have and that doesn't mean that every day is great like I've learned so much in the last couple of years, like just how to say no, how to set boundaries. I mean, if you can't set boundaries, like good luck. Um, how to readjust my expectations of what it meant to to school or whatnot. And, and I think where things come into alignment, because I really, really believe, I really believe that Reagan, my son, he's a map for, for myself and also for where things are. So when I look at what happened with him, right, and, and, and I've had issues with his school districts for, for a long time. Um, a lot of times when they're special needs, they just don't get the same kind of attention and care that neurotypical kids do. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw, okay, he needs something different, like homeschool ended up working for him when we were doing Zoom from home and doing homeschool in the summer. I'm like, okay, this is actually not that hard. I can do it. He's you know, there's, you only need like 90 minutes of instructions a day, like 60 to 90 minutes of actual instruction. The rest is just filler. So the challenge is when I'm home and the 90 minutes are up, 
I have to kind of occupy him and that's the challenge. So you see that setup back there, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's been for both of us. Like I'm working and he's literally across from me and that, and that is poignant in two ways. One, I'll be talking about the issues that you and I talk about, which are serious issues with a lot of gravity. The next second, I'm literally teaching this kid the difference between one plus one and 11 plus one, like just simple, simple basics. And it really keeps you humble and reminds you like, you're not that important. You're not all that you think you are. Like this is just, you're still at the foundational level with another little person. And then the second thing is, is, um, you know, when we look at extremism, we look at what I call radicalization is the idea that there's only one way to be and belong in the world and that's it. And extremism is enacting that radicalization, radicalized belief through force. So forcing someone to act a certain way, believe a certain way. And I would say that it's not just physical violence, it's also psychological violence, emotional violence, like whatever that violence looks like in different forms. Now, when I look at the school districts and I look at the, the setup that you have for children, specifically autistic children, these children are so diverse. They're so different. Like he's one of the most interesting people I know on this yep. planet that it is such a cruelty again to put him in a system where he's with a bunch of other kids who are nothing like each other. They have no commonality. They don't even like each other. Um, it's not like they're learning off of peers because you know they don't see each other as peers. And now you're forcing him through a funnel every single day to, to modify his behavior so that it's normalized with what is expected of a school system. Well, he is extremely artistic. He learns like an accordion, like you have to take a subject, you have to like pull it out, like that's how he learns. So am I not being an extremist by forcing him into a school system mm. that doesn't work for him, that forces him to be a certain way that doesn't doesn't align with who he is? Because why? Because it's easier for me so I can have five free hours in the day. Like, is that not extreme? So the, the philosophy that I went with was unschooling, which really looks at the, the concept of free will in education. And so, you know, that's different for each kid, but the principle is that you're not forcing kids, you're working within their interests. So if I know he likes art and art's his gateway, then everything, every subject goes around art. If I know he takes 15 minutes to learn something, then I'm going to give him 15 minutes to learn something or to, to start getting into that mindset to learn that thing versus, oh, 15 minutes are up, we're on to the next hamster wheel. So it's been really eye-opening because I look at, you know, where we are in terms of like how are more and more people becoming radicalized and polarized and extreme like the you used to be this idea that what's extreme is just this fringe group and now we're seeing it's actually very very common so okay how do we take that and and reprogram or unprogram people at the the youngest level and i think that's where i got the idea for um having workshops for younger kids like really simple things because we've been talking to Uh, high schools about extremism they all know that okay at high school it's too late like these kids are already in their pattern the programs that we're having are not working because all the programs are doing they're well intended but they're just reinforcing the extremist message there's no alternative frameworks so one of the things is okay go into schools at a younger age and talk about these subjects without even mentioning extremism radicalization polarity because that's so so much for even an adult let alone a small child but start teaching them things like what does it mean to listen what does it mean to see what is it you know what are these simple simple concepts so that there's a level of confidence there a level of awareness so that when they are older and they're encountering the the things that typically pull people in to the other side there is a resiliency that's built in and that's it's a natural resiliency absolutely and it's 
I'm so glad you mentioned that about going in at the younger ages because you don't even have to talk about extremism or radicalization or, you know, extremist groups or terrorism or anything like that because what we're doing at the younger ages is we're teaching them simple dialogue, simple, hey, you're different than me and that's okay and what can we do to understand each other? Like, that's all part of it. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. And it's, it's so, so true. Um, yeah, like it, it, it amazes me how us as adults tend to complicate everything and how when we're thinking about it and we're thinking about, okay, there's all these people out here countering this, they're countering these ideologies and stuff like that. But how do we prevent it? And it starts with our youth starts with our youth did you have something to say jeff oh i was just going to say we really appreciate you coming on the program and it was very informative and and if there's anything um that you had that you wanted to mention in closing um, just yeah i just wanted to thank you guys for the work that you're doing because i'm gonna be honest there's a lot of people doing a lot of work um there's two things like to, to touch on what acacia just said there's a lot of people focusing on what's wrong and we can talk about that all day, but that's not going to help the solution at all. It's, it's, it's not a solution. Reamplifying what went wrong, who said what, who did this, is not the solution. It's just reamplification of the problem. So to see you guys actually talk about solutions and, and Jeff and Acacia, like you guys hustle and you work so, so hard. And just for me personally, it's not going unnoticed. Like I'm just noticing how much you guys are doing authentically. Um, this, this entire industry is a big ego trip for a lot of people. Like they say, Politics was a thing to be, now it's humanitarian chic to take on an issue. And it's, you guys are not that, like you are the real deal, the real deal. And so I really, really appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you do and for starting the Foundation for Human Belonging. I am so excited to see that grow and flourish. Um, Very excited. And I will definitely, um, in our bio or in our description of this podcast will be the link for your website and also for the human belonging and also for that uh, Zoom uh, meeting for the 9-11. So looking forward to that very much. So thank you again. Thank you so much.